We're continuing on this morning in Acts chapter 3. We are spending some time looking at Peter's second sermon, the sermon that was given after the man who was born crippled was healed. We have seen that Peter and John came to the temple not just to pray, which I think to pray was very necessary and good thing for them to do, but also that it was an opportunity to come and to preach and teach about Christ. Now God had blessed this mission of theirs with not only healing the man, but then giving them a ready audience to hear them speak about the Lord Jesus. We noted at verse 12, chapter 3, it's when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently as us, as though by our own power or godliness we made this man to walk? There's that first question he asked. Why do you marvel at this? The man, to the man who was born crippled, this was a real big deal. And so also to the crowd. But in the scope of the things which Jesus had done, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which event that they most likely had heard of, but also his own rising from the dead that took place in that very area in just a few months prior. So the question, why do you marvel? Note, why do you marvel? Not at us, but why do you marvel at this? This particular healing. And then the second question, why do you look so earnestly at us as though our own power or holiness, by that we made this man to walk? Why do you marvel at the healing? And then why do you marvel at us? As if it was something that we did. Look, it was our God. It was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What we are doing here is nothing novel. We are leading Right in the way, the path. We are bringing you to the worship of the true God, the God that they had received from their fathers. So first, Peter's making it clear when he says in verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and a God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. There's nothing new here, is what Peter is saying. Nothing novel, nothing to lead anyone astray. In fact, it's purely in line with what had been given in the Scriptures. The God of our fathers, as he repeats the source, the title that God had given of himself, this God, the only true God hath glorified his servant, his son, Jesus Christ. The father has declared of the son, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. 
But the question is, as we point you down this proper line, what did you do? What did you do with the information the scriptures had given? What did you do with the one whom the Father delighted in? You delivered him to Pilate. You denied the holy and righteous one. You disowned him. You said, we will not have this man. We do not want this man. If we turn to John chapter 19... And then in verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and, and sat down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement. But in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover in about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so they did what they did in defiance of Pilate's reasoning. And they denied Christ. And instead, would have a murderer to be released in his place. In Matthew chapter 27, and in verse 20. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And so we see already that they had delivered Christ to Pilate. They had denied him as the son of God and as their king. They had disowned him completely. And in defiance of Pilate's reasoning, they desired a murderer to be released. And so the last D word is destroy, as we saw in Matthew 27 and verse 20. Him they gave to destroy now here Peter shows how contrary they were. <clears throat> they had preserved a murderer. What does a murderer do? He destroys life. And instead, they destroyed the Savior, the author of life. They did the very opposite of what they should have done. You killed the Prince of Life whom God has raised from the dead. Verse 14, 
But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. What he's making clear here is you saw Jesus as just another man that you could do anything you wanted to do with Him. One that you could do away with. But God raised Him from the dead. So basically, what you did in putting Christ to death, you were fighting against God. You killed the Prince of Life. But what did God do? He raised him back. Raised him back to life. So you're fighting against God. You lost. We witnessed the resurrected Christ. And so they had delivered. They had denied. They had disowned. They had defied. And they had desired a murder instead. But some might ask, why is Peter saying this to the people who were at the temple at that time? Well, the answer twofold. First, we are really not removed far in time from the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. And we're very close to the time of Pentecost. So, again, in Peter's first sermon in chapter 2 in verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So you see, the same thing is being said because you're in the same place, and not really much time has passed. So secondly, they were in Jerusalem, the place where all this happened. And among the crowd, no doubt there were those who very well could have been shouting on that day, crucify him, crucify him. And probably others who, though they may have not been present on that day, gave a nod of approval to what the people said may have very well congratulated them and approved of what the crowd did that day. And in reality, when we think about it, how different in spirit were they, all those in generations, in that generation and in the generations who followed, all who deny Jesus as the risen Lord, as the Son of God, John wrote about them in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. If you want to turn there. In 1 John chapter 4 and in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. 
And these continue to exist in great numbers. In fact, even greater numbers today. There are some who might say, you might find someone who will read the New Testament and they might say at one point, yeah, it was really bad what they did to Jesus. Even though I don't believe in him, I still think it was very bad the way they treated him. It was all wrong. But I ask you, with that kind of response, it almost sounds nice. I was awful what they did to Jesus. You believe in him? No. Then what difference were they People who answer that kind of way, what different are they than those who actually denied him? Because the moment you say, I don't believe him, you have joined ranks with those who said, crucify him. Well, wait a minute, I never went as far as to say crucify him. It doesn't matter. You denied him, so you're saying he's false. He's a phony. We're better off without him. A major thing that we need to see here, just as it was in chapter 2, that when it comes to salvation, a missing link so often is what we see in our modern age is that conviction must precede conversion. Conviction must precede conversion. We must know our sins and its consequences before we can desire desire Savior. Just like as we're looking at the spiritual dimensions of the man who was healed, the man who was a cripple knew he was a cripple, knew he was helpless, knew he could only rise up with the help of someone else. It was not within him to rise up and walk. He knew that. He had to be carried. He was without strength. He knew that. He knew he had to beg for his existence. So he was already convicted of the state that he was in. We see that spiritual lesson being given to us. We must know that the conviction must have the conviction of what we have done before we have and the, and the consequences for what we have done before we desire a Savior. Or we will be no different than those in verse 14 who denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. See, if you don't go with Christ, what's the alternative? If you're not with Christ, you can't say, well, you know, there's Christ, there's the the devil, but there's this middle ground that I can walk. There's this middle ground that I can can walk and maybe I can veer off to, to this side for a little bit and I can veer off to that side for a little bit. There's no middle. There's no third option. It's either Christ, or if you deny him, you are of your father, the devil. 
You know some words that Peter uses here of Christ, the, the Holy One and the Just, or as in the ESV, the Just and Holy One. That the Holy One, the One was who was holy in both His divine and human nature. <clears throat> Peter, in chapter 2, quoted Psalm 16 and verse 10 and uses the same title here. The Holy One. <clears throat> The just, the righteous. There's the definite article that is there that puts it singular and above everything else. <clears throat> when it comes to holy, he is the holy one. There's no one comes, there's no one on that plane, no one near that title. It is only he, the holy one, the righteous one, the just. He is the fountain of holiness and righteousness for all who believe. And because of who he is in verse 16, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes, see this, which comes where? Through him, through Christ, has given him, the cripple, this perfect soundness in the presence of all. So his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. And just so we would say, ah, you see, <coughs> it was because this man had faith. The cripple had faith. That's why he got up and walked. If we, if we read it without reading the whole verse, <coughs> we might get that idea. His name, verse 16. There are names that we can mention here in this room. If I mention that name, something comes to your mind. A certain attribute, a certain quality, or a certain negativeness. If I remember our old brother Stan Beard, and I say, remember brother Stan, Maybe one of the first things you'll think about is his laugh. That unmistakable laugh that he had. That always, you always wanted to try to make him say something funny in front of him just so you could hear him laugh. See, there are things, there, people's names <coughs> evoke different responses with us. So in essence, <clears throat> there is power in their name. Because it causes us to think a certain way. You might be thinking about <clears throat> the casserole you ate this morning and then someone mentions someone's name and you stop thinking about the casserole and you think about that person. See, there's <clears throat> In essence, there's a certain power in the name just on a human level. What does the name of Christ bring in? The name of Christ speaks of, as the name of God, the attributes of Christ, the power of Christ. And so all that comes into play when we speak of the name of Christ. And it was all that in the name of Christ that caused this man to be made strong. <coughs> Sometimes. Uh, we hear names so often that it doesn't have the same effect on us. 
But the name of Jesus should always elicit a sense of awe, a sense of wonder, a sense of majesty. (laughs) There's never been anyone else like him. Fully human, fully divine. And that immediately brings people to say, well, I can't begin to wrap my head around that. Right. Because you've got no area that you can look back and say, oh, yeah, I I knew someone like that at one time. I experienced someone like that. You have no realm of experience on that. (coughs) Excuse me. There's a tickle there. You've never met anyone fully human and fully divine. You've got no realm of experience. Your mind can't conjure that. Begin to conjure all that together. Can't cobble it all together. That makes Jesus the one and only. And will always be that way. Holiness and righteousness come forth with the name of Jesus. Of course, the name Jesus means Savior. And Christ, Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah. There's certainly a sense of meekness when we speak of Christ, but there's also great power. When they spoke to the cripple in verse 6, they said, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, rise and walk. And his name through faith in his name. It is, it's made clear here then that neither this man or anything in the apostles caused this man to stand in full health. You see, it was the faith, which he tells us here, which comes through Jesus. The crippled man didn't stir it up in himself. The apostles didn't inject it into him. It came through Christ, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 and verses 8 and 9. By grace, you have been saved through faith. It is a gift. Faith is a gift. It is not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. And this is what has given him perfect soundness an unimpaired condition. If there had been x-rays at that time, they could have brought that man in and seen in the x-ray solid bones and well-formed muscles and sinews and tendons. So this man was perfectly healed. You notice that, that it says he was perfectly healed. Maybe now he had the legs of a marathoner. But he says, on top of that, you know him. And his name, verse 16, through faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. You saw him before, you saw him after. There's no trickery. There's no sleight of hand. 
this is how it truly is. And the feeling that his physical healing gives us an illustration of how Jesus delivers us from the sin, its guilt, and judgment. He does it perfectly. Hebrews 7 and verse 25, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him. Complete and salvation. A little while ago we sang that hymn, To God Be the Glory. You notice the second verse, Oh, what? Perfect redemption. Perfect. <clears throat> Tonight, we're going to talk about, uh, Lord willing, what happens when you die. And a lot of people say, well, yeah, you got this judgment you got to deal with. <clears throat> yeah, if you're not in Christ, you sure have to deal with the judgment. But since Christ has perfectly atoned for all my sins, there's nothing, nothing to judge. Nothing to judge. Our faith has ups and downs, but we are not saved by our faith. We are saved by Christ. And faith is the means by which we take hold of him. And so, oh, perfect redemption the purchase of blood to every believer of the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Let's stand together for prayer.